This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. As we were going to air on Monday, the union leader representing Ontario's 55,000 CUPE education workers had just called off their strike following Premier Doug Ford's offer to rescind the controversial Bill 28, which imposed a contract on the workers and banned their right to strike. It was a moment of relief for people across the province, especially for those who have children or grandchildren in Ontario's public school system. Our Zoomer squad joined me when I was filling in for Libby with their immediate reactions to this breaking news. Peter Mugrich is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder is chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. I have a uh, personal interest in it. I guess I have a grandson who's, uh, who's home uh, from school and uh, his mother, my daughter, is a teacher who's under some bizarre rule, has to go into the school building to teach uh, on Zoom, believe it or not. Ah. Uh, who knows why? I mean, don't get me started on the, uh, the TDSB and its Byzantine rules. But um, as a grandparent who would have been pressed into service, not that I mind spending more time with the little fellow, <laughs> it's great news. And I think it's it's great news for everyone. It absolutely is. Bill, it's nice to see people offer a compromise to go back to bargaining, to get a deal, and let the kids go back to their classrooms. Well, it sure is. And as David said, uh, uh, many of our CARP members uh, uh, would have uh, were pressed into service when the strike happened and uh, are going to be very pleased that things are returning to somewhat normal. Of course, The problem continues to be, what do we do over the next few weeks? Will the negotiations continue? Do we have to prepare for perhaps grandparents uh, stepping in Mm -hmm. again? Does this mean you can't plan uh, accordingly uh, your own uh, uh, schedule until the whole thing is settled? It's still very much up in the air in terms of concerns that uh, older uh, Ontarians have. Peter Mugrich, welcome back. Thanks, Jane. And your reaction to this breaking news? Well, you know, it's it's much better for the kids to be in in school physically rather than learning through Zoom, which, um, you know, my son, <clears throat> when he was in high school, really struggled during those two years. And, you know, you lose a lot of the experience and a lot of the fun and also it's difficult to learn uh you know and so even if if it was it wasn't going to be a longer one even a week or or so um you know it's good that it's over um it's a shame that it had to come to that why why these negotiations always have to be posturing for the first few days and then they get down to business but i guess that's the way it is and uh all's well that ends well 
David, interesting this morning that when Doug Ford was offering his massive olive branch, as he called it, he talked about how he heard from a grandfather last night whose four grandkids were dropped off because he needs to look after them because his his son and daughter or son and daughter-in-law have to go back to work. So interesting. Right. This really is a big dynamic. Well, it's a, it's a big dynamic um, year-round. I mean, it's highlighted now because of the strike, but um, we could do many shows on the whole role of grandparents, <clears throat> excuse me, grandparents in helping take care of their grandchildren and um, uh, the degree to which they are relied upon uh, to do that and some of the functions that they're doing. And then we've talked you know, even intergenerational financial support that sometimes comes with it. So once you open that topic, uh, get ready for a host of data and information to come pouring in, I'm afraid. Bill, do you want to comment on that? The grandparent uh, syndrome scenario, caregiving <laughs> scenario? <laughs> well, it, it is, and it's becoming a, an expectation. It's becoming a, a norm where, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and back, uh, very much uh, to the attitude uh, years ago that uh, grandparents were just expected to be part of the family and look after uh, and look after the, the grandkids. But now that that uh, older Ontarians are working longer, they're staying at work. It 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 really is a, a conundrum for a lot of people because they're continuing to work as older citizens and then expecting to offer uh, care to their grandchildren. So who gives up? Who, who stays home from work? Is it the parent? Is it the parent? Is it the grandparent? Is it another uh, uh, relative? It's a very complicated uh, situation and the repercussions from this kind of uh, work stoppage or, or school stoppage right. uh, hits many more people than the, than just the, the uh, employee, the parent and the child. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravit, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. They joined me minutes after we learned the CUPE strike had been called off on Monday. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. When Doug Ford was campaigning for re-election as Ontario's premier, he promised he would not take any land from the Greenbelt for housing developments. But a week ago yesterday, Ford's Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark announced that the government is opening up 7,400 acres of the protected Greenbelt lands for new housing— so developers can build 50,000 homes on that land. Clark also revealed that 9,400 acres in different areas would be added to the Green Belt, in effect making the Green Belt 2,000 acres larger. On Monday, Premier Ford was asked why he is going back on his promise, and he explained that we have a housing crisis that we didn't have four years ago because of the new immigrants who are arriving and that these people need places to live. I was joined by a panel of experts and stakeholders for their reaction to this explanation. Tim Gray is Executive Director of Environmental Defense. Gideon Foreman is a climate change and transportation policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. And Mike Schreiner is leader of the Green Party of Ontario. 
saying this is completely outrageous that the premier would break his promise not to touch the green belt. I mean, <laughs> the green belt is there to protect the farmland that feeds us, to ensure that the green space and wetlands, we need to protect us from extreme weather events such as flooding. Uh, and just also the places we love to visit and spend time with our families. And so this so-called land swap uh, isn't what it's cut out, what the premier says it is. I mean, essentially what the premier is saying, hey, you know what, we're going to uh, protect some urban river valleys, something that absolutely should be protected. Matter of fact, I've been arguing the Greenbelt should be expanded to protect those river valleys. But people aren't going to build housing there anyway. And so, so that is just a red herring argument. The bottom line is, is the premier is opening the Greenbelt up for development, and he doesn't need to because we have sufficient land available already open for development. 350 square kilometers of Greenfield development um, is already approved, uh, and we should be developing on that land, not the Greenbelt. Gideon Foreman, go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's a disaster. I mean, uh, the whole idea of a Greenbelt is to afford permanent protection to sensitive lands forests, wetlands, agricultural areas, and now that's being destroyed. I mean, it was supposed to be permanent, and clearly the protection isn't permanent. And it's not just going back four years when that promise was made. A year ago, I have the Toronto Star clippings that I dug up this morning. A year ago, Minister Clark said, our government will not consider any proposals to remove or develop any part of it. A year ago, he was saying that. So uh, they're flip-flopping, and it's a disaster for the people of Ontario. Tim Gray, your impression of the of the promises that are, the promise broke broken. Yeah, it's a promise from the premier, of course, which is important. People need to take that seriously. And breaking it should have consequences. But it's also an undoing of the work of many governments over many generations, including conservative governments of um, Bill Davis and Mike Harris. You know, we have been trying to improve the planning system in Southern Ontario to better protect nature, protect our water, provide housing for a long time. This is like throwing a bomb into the middle of the entire planning system and then lying to the public that it's going to create houses that are affordable for people. None of those 300,000 people that are coming to the uh, Greater Golden Horseshoe are going to be buying more monster homes built on wetlands or farms uh, far from the city. They want to be living in downtown Hamilton. They want to live in downtown Waterloo. They want to live in downtown Toronto places where they can walk, um, where they can take public transit, and they want to be able to do so in a way that's affordable for them. And this government had an opportunity to change the rules to allow more building inside of the cities. City of Hamilton wanted that. City of Waterloo has been pursuing that. Halton wanted that. Toronto wants to do that. And he didn't give them those tools. Mm. Instead, he's opening vast areas of the Greenbelt to uh, single-family home development that will do nothing for affordability, destroys farms, and destroys nature. And, and how important is Ontario's farmland to the global food supply? You know, I mean, that would, might be kind of interesting to know as well, Gideon. Well, I can tell you that some of the land we have in southern Ontario is among the very, very best land in Canada. So it's a crucial, crucial area for producing food. And increasingly, we're seeing the importance of that. People have been saying that, you know, with climate crisis, um, it, you know, there's nothing more valuable than this farmland. And, and it's wonderful farmland. Think of the of the tender fruit that we grow in, in the Niagara region, for example, those peaches and plums and grapes. It's crucially important. So the idea, again, it's just, it just uh, unfathomable. And the other thing I would just add by way of final comment is, you know, the Greenbelt is so popular. Ecos research did polling in August that 75% of folks in, in suburban areas 
want to see more protection for the green belt. Uh, and it's not surprising. Tim Gray of Environmental Defense, your final comments. I think people really need to realize that this is a broad scale attack on livability, uh, affordability, and the ecological quality of Southern Ontario. And this is a moment that everyone needs together and fight back. We have to stop the Ford government from moving forward to to do this. Uh, It's really, really important. We all work together on it. Tim Gray, Executive Director of Environmental Defense. Gideon Foreman, Climate Change and Transportation Policy Analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. And Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, the push for a Canada disability benefit and the latest numbers on cancer in Canada. Those topics are coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canada must do right by those with disabilities. The words of David Lepofsky, who chairs the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance. The Trudeau Liberals called it shameful that one million people in this country languish in poverty. They promised to create the Canada Disability Benefit to lift these individuals out of poverty. But it seems there is very little to offer those who are not considered traditional working age, people 65 and older. David joined me on Tuesday to talk about what's being offered and why it's not enough. Hundreds of thousands, upwards of a million Canadians with disabilities, if not more, live in poverty, according to the federal government's own data. Uh, And uh, that's got to change. In a society like Canada's, we can do better. Uh, Now, it's it's great that the federal liberal... um, committed two years ago that to address this, to lift people with disabilities out of poverty, they would create something new, a new new part of our social safety net, a Canada disability benefit. Uh, That's great. The problem is they brought in a bill in a parliament to achieve this, but the bill assures us absolutely nothing. Uh, Bill C-22, which is now before Parliament, is before a standing committee. I'll be appearing before that committee next next Monday. It says that the federal government can establish a Canada disability benefit, but it doesn't require it to. It doesn't set a minimum amount. That's left to cabinet. It doesn't set a start date, uh, if ever. That's left to cabinet. And it doesn't set eligibility criteria. That's left to cabinet. And the problem with this is that, for one thing, it it doesn't assure that anybody's going to get a dime who needs it. It doesn't assure that this is going to be swift, even though they're in poverty and in desperation now, many of them. Uh, But it also leaves it all to cabinet who meets in secret, who votes in secret, who doesn't have to publicly justify what they do. And even if the current cabinet uh, wants to do a good thing, 
another cabinet could come along and in secret gut all of this. And, and we say that people with disabilities deserve better. Okay, so help us understand the way the process should be happening right now to uh, to fully optimize the possibility of a benefit for disabled people. Okay, so the first thing is we need the legislation to set out not all the details, but enough of the basics so that this isn't just a blank check to cabinet to do in secret as much or as little if it wishes, whenever it feels like it. So the only detail that the bill sets, and there's one which the bill is mandatory on, is a bad one. It says that the Canada Disability Benefit will only be available to working age people with disabilities. Now, the problem is disability poverty does not end at age 65. Mm -hmm. And the government knows that there are people with disabilities living in poverty who are seniors. For example, one-third almost of people with disabilities over the age of 15 are, are seniors. Uh, I happen to be blind, uh, and I can tell you uh, from statistics from CNIB that uh, a majority of people who are blind are over the age of 65. So they would not get a dime out of this no matter what. Yet again, I'd say they deserve better. So what we're looking for, there's a unanimous view within the disability community that Parliament should pass this bill quickly. But we, what we're adding, and uh, a number of people with disabilities agree, is before they pass it quickly, they should fix it quickly, fix the bill, put in some of the basic details we need, because that will speed up getting money into the pockets of people with disabilities, and it'll protect us from an arbitrary blank check power to every future cabinet to give as much or as little as they wish. David Lepofsky, chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Cancer continues to be a shared experience for many Canadians. A report out this week by the Canadian Cancer Society shows the number of people living with or having survived cancer in this country continues to grow to over 1.5 million people. Ten years ago, the number was estimated to be 1 million Authors of the report say the higher number is caused by both increased survival and incidence, making it both a reason for optimism and concern. Kelly Wilson-Cull is the Director of Advocacy at the Canadian Cancer Society. She joined me on Tuesday. There's kind of a, you know, two sides to this coin. Uh, one is more concerning because, of course, cancer incidence, that means the sheer number of people who are being diagnosed with cancer, is growing. Uh, and that's really due to two reasons. One is that we have an aging population and cancer is primarily, though of course not exclusively, um, a disease of a, an older age demographic. And we also have a growing population in Canada. But the flip side of that, the more optimistic side, is around the fact that there have been tremendous improvements in terms of survival rates for people living with cancer. And so more Canadians are expected to survive their, their cancer diagnosis. Um, and that contributes to an increase in long-term prevalence. Now, today in Canada, 
64% of people survive five years past um, their diagnosis of cancer. And that's a a significant increase um, from, you know, decades ago. Absolutely. So of those 1.5 million people who are either undergoing cancer treatment or have survived cancer, have you broken down what percentage uh, of of the 1.5 million are right now dealing with cancer versus those who have survived? So I could tell you a couple of things. Um, we have uh, we know that two in five Canadians will be impacted by cancer in their lifetime. So I think that for for most Canadians, um, you would agree with the statement that um, that everybody is impacted by cancer, whether it's directly or indirectly. Um, in the context of this report, we know that just this year alone, um, 200, 234,000 Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so that really will, of course, add to the cancer prevalence that we've talked about, that 1.5 million um, people who are living with cancer. And it really uh, drives a call to action around um, what, what, what do we need um, to put in place in terms of compassionate support um, for those 1.5 million Canadians? And, and then how do we, um, with a more longer-facing view, look at needs around prevention and screening, diagnostics, diagnostic treatment and, and end of life care and to support those people who may not currently be in the cancer journey, but, but may be in the years to come. Kelly, let's break it down a little bit more. Um, so incidence is up, survival is up, but what about the cancer death rate? Sure. Um, so we know that, of course, that there is um, there are a lot of people, you know, the significant population that does not survive cancer. Um, and we know that there's a lot of work to do in terms of particular types of cancer. Um, in, in the context of prevalence, uh, we know that the vast majority, over 50 percent of people of, of prevalent cancers relate back to breast, prostate and colorectal cancer. Um, one one type of cancer that's not included in that list would be lung cancer. Um, that's uh, an example of a type of cancer that has a high, high incidence rate um, in Canada among both men and women, um, but unfortunately a very low survival rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the prevalence of lung cancer is not high in terms of how it exists in our, um, in our society today. Um, so there's certainly a lot of work to do around um, improving survival rates of, of particular types of cancers. Um, lung cancer would be a, a good example of that, um, so that fewer people are, are succumbing to cancer. Kelly, uh, do you have any final comments as, uh, you know, I mean, there there is more good news than bad, I suppose. Well, you know, one of the aspects of this report is that there are so many people who are surviving more longer term um, with a cancer diagnosis. And in, in fact, um, in terms of the people who are living with a prevalent cancer, we know that 60% of that population has survived between 5 and 25 years. So it, again, really points to that long-term survival and it causes us to think about what supports do we need to ensure that cancer survivors have in place to support their recovery and life after cancer. Kelly Wilson called Director of Advocacy at the Canadian Cancer Society. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. 
Joan in Oshawa phoned to talk about her experience with cancer. I've had cancer three times. So it's been um, quite a road. I never lost, um, never lost hope. Um, and I, I say to other other people that are going through uh, cancer, I also had skin cancer. <laughs> so, you know, for other people that are going through it, to uh, keep keep their hope and and uh, just keep looking up, and it's. It, it's not all doom and gloom like a lot of people, you know, say it is. Um, I went through it. It wasn't a breeze, but yeah. I went through it, and I've come come out stronger. Did what you had than, to do uh, than yeah. before. John in Peterborough called about Doug Ford's plan to develop some of the green belt after promising during the election campaign he wouldn't touch it. When it's gone, it's gone. Right? It's gone. Mm-hmm. Now, we saw the Rouge Valley years ago, years and years ago, where there was nothing in it. Now there's fish in it. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like I say, when it's gone, it's gone. But for me, Ford, Ford to me will be just like Mike Harris. After they make a mess of everything and they retire or they're voted out, you'll see them on the board of this, that, and the other. Because all the developers that I ever worked for, I can assure you, 90% of them had no interest in the environment. What they have an interest in is making money. Now, I didn't know that this land was already sold and bought for bought by these developers. How did that get by? Who was paying attention to that? Mary Ann in Bradford also called on this issue. I'm just so devastated to hear about the plans for the green belt that he promised he would continue to protect that. I grew up on farmland where we all grew enough for ourselves and others in the community. It was beautiful farmland and orchards, which today it is all covered with subdivision. It's not necessary. I totally agree with Mike Schreiner's plan for planning our cities differently and the housing and making it more easy for people to get to work. Daryl in Toronto phoned about the Green Belt. Frankly, I don't think he has any right to do this. This is not like a government surplus that he inherited from the previous government that is his to deal with. This land is, you know, other governments haven't touched it. They didn't save it. Not so that, you know, Doug Ford could come along when it was handy and farm it out to, you know, his development friends. Ron in Guelph called about the education workers. They've been talking about that they're not paid enough, but um, I'm hoping that everybody realizes that educational assistance and a lot of the custodians, this is strictly a part-time job. I know that I'm driving a school bus. It's a part-time job, and I get, I'm get i allowed to collect unemployment insurance at Christmas time, March, and in the summer. If this is a part-time job for these people, are they eligible to collect unemployment insurance when they're not actually getting paid by the uh, board. Let's talk about apples and apples instead of apples and oranges in terms of what they're actually paid. So did Ron in Brampton. The teachers' unions now are salivating at the thought, wow, look at this. What's going on? This is a dog and pony show. It's been going on since the early 90s. It's um, at some point, um, it's got to end somewhere because it's been going on with the the NDP of Bob Ray, Mike Harris, the teachers were on strike in 97. Yeah. For the most part, the liberals under McGinty 
And I can remember my own MPP, Liz Sandals, gave the union, teachers' unions, $3.5 million in 2000, January 2017 for their negotiating costs. What was that about? I mean, right now, the unions, um, teachers' unions, are ruling the roost. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Pat in Toronto, who also phoned about negotiations for the Ontario education workers. Hopefully they're going to go to binding arbitration. I mean, that's the provision that's been in our industrial relations for probably 50 years. Um, government often doesn't like it because sometimes the awards are higher than government wants to give. Um, interesting, I took a look at Mr. Lecce's income and how much it's gone up. And you must, you must admit, sometimes the people at the bottom are the ones who are suffering. And my last point, which I have made many times, our problem, which ties in with the financing of people in retirement and the fact that we're all living a lot longer, is how are we financing people's longevity, in other words, in the seniors' homes. And Kathleen Wynne had a suggestion with regard to increasing CPP, and I think it is so, so, so important, and I'm just hoping that government will do something with that because we're all living an extra 10, 15, Mm -hmm. 20 years over what used to be the rules. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.